someone died. Okay, also by a show of hands, while dividing up the state, please raise your hand if the discussion was completely conflict-free. That's pretty good. And also there's a sermon in, you know, like, end-of-life planning, which is a good thing. Um, But that is the entry into today's gospel. Two brothers did not agree. And so the younger brother asks Jesus to settle the dispute. I love the way he tries to put a finger on the scale. Tell my brother to split the family inheritance with me. Now, buried in that is something that comes from Deuteronomy 21, which is that the oldest brother, or if there's only one male heir, the male heir, gets a double share of the inheritance. So if you have two brothers, the older brother gets two-thirds, and the younger brother gets one-third. Or if you have a brother and a sister, the brother gets two-thirds, and the sister gets one-third. And he doesn't just say, give me my share. He says, split. He's trying to change it. And also the younger brother is uh, charged with asking to split the inheritance. It's the same thing that happens with the prodigal son, actually. So the older brother wants to keep the land, which is the main source of wealth intact. And the other brother wants to divide it up and get his share. But Jesus refuses because he sees the greed in the brother's request. He already owns land, which means he's wealthy relative to his neighbors. He wants to increase his wealth and social status at his family's expense. And then Jesus rejects both of those requests, offering instead the parable of the rich fool as a teaching against greed. Now, if I were retelling it, I would probably try to tone it down because rich fool seems little on the nose. So as a proud Minnesotan, might I suggest some rebranding How about the successful businessman with targeted opportunities for improvement who also does some things pretty well most of the time? (laughs) But that's not what Jesus calls it. The rich fool owns vast swaths of land. He harvests a bumper crop, which means he has more grain than he knows what to do with, and he has options here. What would you do with the surplus? What would you advise him to do? One, he could sell it making it available to the community at a fair price and increasing the food supply. Two, he could give it away. And that was common. They had jubilee feasts. They gave it away to neighbors. Or three, he could hoard it all for himself. Guess which option he chooses. That's correct, option three. He's a shrewd businessman, but his shrewdness is shown to be evil. Why? 
He builds colossal storage so he can keep it for himself. This decreases the grain supply at harvest and drives up the price for everyone else. And then he plans to sell it later at a higher price, even though much of that grain which could have fed people would have spoiled. Bear in mind that in the ancient Near East, storing grain was exorbitantly wasteful. Farmers couldn't get it dry enough to get it to keep for long. The seeds would rot, they'd be eaten by pests, risking a famine. He's hoarding the grain, fully aware, and Jesus' hearers would have known this, that it's terrible for the community. It's good for him. He's self-centered, he's making unethical profits, he's intentionally harming the economy. But to play devil's advocate, is there a case for an unregulated free market economy where we put our trust trust in nothing but unfettered self-interest? Is there a case to be made for investing our resources with no thought to the social or ecological consequences, focused only on return on investment for ourselves in the short term? On this point, Jesus is clear. When we put our own interests over and against the needs of the community, we are foolish. Zimbabwean farmer Henry Mugabe writes, the rich fool wants to control the market at the expense of his neighbors. Now why call him a fool? Because he believes that his security lies in his abundance of possessions. Have you ever heard that saying that sometimes our possessions can possess us? You know, the car needs a payment and it needs to get fixed and the second floor in the house needs all the things and pretty soon it starts to turn into a spiral. But instead, the story suggests that God is the source of ultimate worth. Just as the farmer made the shrewd decision and starts a conversation with his soul about relaxing and eating and drinking and being merry, thanks to the ample goods laid up for many years, God calls the question. God summons his soul and asks that haunting, echoing question, and all those things that you have prepared, whose will they be? You can almost hear Jacob Marley rattling his chains from the cold chimney, taunting the dreams of old Ebenezer Scrooge. Jesus implies that the man loses his soul to gain some kind of notoriety. In contrast with the rich fool, the, the wise one is rich toward God, which means generous for the good of the whole. Greed, I believe, is the opposite of generosity. Greed makes us worry about what comes next instead of trusting in God's hopeful future. Greed is a tight, closed fist, and generosity is an open hand, an open heart. Greed comes from fear. Generosity comes from love. Greed feels like stomach acid and gritted teeth. Generosity feels like a deep breath. Greed corrodes our relationships. It eats us alive on the inside. Well, generosity blesses those around us. It does what Mr. Rogers called us to do so many years ago, to remind each other that we are loved and capable of loving. This story calls a question for each of us. How do we manage our possessions and our wealth? It is uncomfortable good news, which is to say gospel, because Jesus calls us to steward the gifts we receive to the glory of God and to the good of the neighborhood. How are we investing our funds personally and communally? 
What's more important, return on investment or knowing that our, we are investing in actions that reflect our values? The Harvard Business Review just did a five-year review of what they call so, uh, socially responsible investing. They looked at $12 billion invested over five years with firms with explicit plans to meet the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. And they found that not only did those, did those funds do well financially, they beat the market average, but they also advanced the causes that they were talking about advancing. And so the really exciting news about socially responsible investing is that it actually makes money, you can still have a retirement, and it can make the world healthier, fairer, more beautiful. I do not mean to imply that all economy is foolish, or that we can invest or save for the future, or that our financial well-being is a sinful pursuit, or that markets can't be harnessed to solve problems, because I believe they can be. And I've also spent time in communist countries, and I've seen the corruption and suffering that arises from that economic theory. But I do mean to suggest that when we prioritize self-interest over and against the needs of the common good, that we are fools. I'm specifically naming self-interest as weak sauce, as insufficient for determining moral, ethical action. So we find ourselves in a bind. How might we know what is ethical with our money, with our land, with our time? What other theological ground might we stand on? I give you a new commandment, Jesus says, that you should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, and I believe that God calls us to spend and invest our money as if the fate of the world mattered. Ultimately, generosity is a spiritual practice. God has been generous to us, and we are called to respond in kind. I love that line in the old communion rite, as we bring our gifts to the altar just before communion. All things come of thee, O Lord. And you know the next line. And of thine own have we given thee. That is the spiritual practice of generosity. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. God is, we are rich toward God, called to the spiritual practice of tending what we have for the sake of the world. There's a story that illustrates this point. It's Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. It tells of a man who begins as a rich fool and discovers what it means to become rich with God. Young Ebenezer Scrooge is bursting with potential. He's brilliant. He's socially awkward. He's head over heels for the girl of his dreams. And then early tragedy pushes him to withdraw from family and friends. His heart hardens. He becomes a shrewd money counter, so tight-fisted, he refuses even to buy coal for heating the office, let alone paying a living wage to his clerk, Bob Cratchit. Cratchit's son, Tiny Tim, barely holds on to life. He's sweet, he's innocent, injured, and dying. Scrooge learns in time that Tim will die if the family can't afford medical care. But why should he pay it? It's not his responsibility. And then Carol's knock on the door and they invite his generosity, but he tells them off, bah, humbug. Their pathetic charity is ill-advised and corrupt and useless. Those prisoners should have paid their debts, otherwise they wouldn't be in jail. That night he's visited by the ghost of old Jacob Marley. 
This is the part of the play with cold chains, fog, and dramatic music. Marley is haunted in his death by the miserly life he led. He visits Ebenezer to convince him to change while there's still time. Three ghosts visit that night, and by morning Scrooge has seen the light. He leaps down the stairs in dazzling clothes. He's usually, depending on the play, like almost hilarious. He's laughing, he's, he's singing, he's joyful. And then your heart warms as he arrives at the Cratchit family door, carrying a big fat goose and all the food they need for a feast. Bob, a little-known employee with no social status, presides over Christmas dinner with Scrooge and Tiny Tim and everybody else holding hands around a long table with plenty good room. And then just after Grace, Tiny Tim, predictably played by the cutest six-year-old in the five-state region, peeps up, God bless us, everyone! <laughs> and everybody in the theater dabs a tear every single year and every theater in town will play that show every single year and we will all buy tickets every single year and i think there's something to that we love this story of grace and transformation we want to see scrooge move from death to life and everybody knows the ending like the titanic sinks like no one's surprised you know but we still want to watch it. We want to see Scrooge see the error of his old ways. We want to know the abundant life that unconditional love can bring. Scrooge had the abundance of possessions for most of his life, but he was dead inside. And now we want to see him with that big fat goose feasting with his friends. And I wonder if sometimes you and I are Scrooge. I don't mean to say that we're shouting humbug at the carolers. Sidebar, if you are doing that, you may also be a Yankees fan. I'd be happy to have a discussion with you after the service. Also, I'm not saying that we should be a leech on life just to have a deathbed conversation that looks good for the theater. But I wonder if we are on a similar journey with Scrooge. We watch his heart turn cold with greed, almost into a stone. He is the rich fool. And then, through grace, God turns it back into a warm and beating heart filled with generosity, rich with God, transformed and abundantly alive. You and Scrooge and I are constantly having our lives transformed by the spiritual practice of generosity. Like Ebenezer Scrooge at the Cratchit Christmas Feast, may we be blessed as we share God's abundance with a hungry world. God bless us, everyone. Amen.